Sue Peshin is the President and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research in Washington, D.C. Sue has more than 20 years of experience in health policy roles and has led the Alliance since 2012. She has driven efforts in adult immunization, cardiovascular disease, and co-organized the first ever NIH Generic Medicine Summit. She participates in many industry and policy symposiums around the United States and the world each year and has published many opinion pieces in leading news outlets nationwide. Sue, it's uh, great to see you. Thank you, Duane. It's great to be here. We're here in your offices at the Alliance of Aging Research on K Street in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. <laughs> One of the things you're focused on here at the Alliance for Aging Research is aging and geriatric medicines, obviously. How does the Alliance for Aging Research address these issues specifically? Sure. And thank you again so much for having me. We're thrilled to, to have a space here. I mean, the issue of aging is really timely right now because we're sort of in the middle of the aging of the baby boom population, which is going to be going on for about another decade or so. In a 2035, older adults are going to outnumber children in the United States. So longer lifespans coupled with the explosion in the older population is producing what's been coined a silver tsunami mm-hmm. of costly chronic diseases and disabilities of aging. Uh, we see it as both sort of a, a problem as well as an opportunity, right? And what do you see as the opportunity? So uh, the opportunity is really that you have, uh, you know, older adults that are contributing still to society. People are productive for much longer periods of time. Uh, We're able to enjoy older people. Uh, That's been happening in other countries prior to us that we weren't able to do before. And people are experiencing longer health spans. Mm -hmm. So they're able to kind of live longer for healthier periods of time. But we could do a lot more to make that even longer. One of the things that's under a lot of discussion are the issues of the Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security the fact that these entitlement programs need to be revised. Are you folks, I imagine you'd be front and center on a lot of the debate around these issues. Well, we're a little bit more on sort of the health and medicine side, but mm-hmm. we, de- we definitely engage in issues at CMS and in Medicare and all of that. And I do think that it is warranted to have those debates um, in part because I think, you know, income has definitely gotten more stark in the United States, differences in wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also people are living longer and working longer. So Back when these programs were created in the 1960s, the idea was you would be eligible for Social Security and Medicare, and you wouldn't be living more than five or 10 years beyond that. Um, And people now have average lifespans closer to 80 years old. A lot of people are living into the 90s. We have more centenarians Mm -hmm. than ever before. Um, So uh, those issues are, are, you know, much more stark in terms of how much we're paying. Now, you folks here have an extremely ambitious agenda. I've looked on the website, and you have 30 areas of focus for research, literally running from Alzheimer's to valve frameworks and heart valves, so A to V, not quite A to Z. How do you manage such an ambitious program? Yeah, well, a lot of those resources, I mean, we develop them over time. We don't focus on all of them simultaneously. Thank God. In any (laughs) given year. Um, So it's really sort of looking at what are the timely issues, what's happening in the clinical pipelines, uh, what's happening on Capitol Hill, what's happening in the regulatory agencies. We look for gaps. There's Mm. a lot of great work that's being done by disease-specific organizations, but we really look for what are the clinical and research gaps, you know, within these 
these particular issues where older adults may not be may be overlooked and they have specific issues of concern that we really feel like we could add to the conversation. It seems like since the failure of the gene, I wouldn't say the failure, but since the issues around PCSK9 gene therapies and cardiovascular disease and the lack of market uptake, there's a a drop-off in research in cardiovascular disease, which I would think would be one of the largest areas for geriatric medicine. Do you see that there are some issues now about what would be traditional public health issues in cardiovascular disease since the drop-off of PCSK9 and the lack of adaption? Yeah, I mean, I think that some of that has to do with kind of understanding payment issues sure. around and and the translation between the clinical pipeline and then what ends up happening at CMS and whether Medicare takes it up or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the with those drugs in particular, just kind of uh, miscommunications around coverage issues and reimbursement for those drugs and whether or not they're being reimbursed at old levels or the new levels. So there's a lot of issues with those right now. And we're actually going to be weighing in on them. In terms of overall what you're talking about, yeah, I think there's space for innovation. And uh, there's also a problem just sort of with reimbursement overall with the uh, with the oral anticoagulants, um, with TAVR, with all of that. So um, we need to have much more, I think, activism around coverage and reimbursement. Are we a victim of our own success of the quality of Lipitor and some of these drugs, the fact that they're generic now and they're essentially free? Or is this just, is it sort of we're just going blasé about these issues in some levels? I do think that they do go through the phases with patent and, um, and that definitely is an issue with companies. But I think that there's a lot of room for innovation in these different areas. Areas PSVT mm-hmm. is one of the newer areas where there's some innovation going on. So I th- I think that that you will still see innovation, but I I think it also has to do with just sort of activism within the community, mm-hmm. and uh, and we need to have sort of a demand for for more product. You'd mentioned drug pricing and the issue of, um, about pricing in the United States. Obviously, this is becoming very contentious. On my way here, I heard a national public radio discussion about drug pricing. For your stakeholder group in particular, uh, this is challenging. How do you try to balance the need for advocacy for new medicines and promoting innovation, but also the ability for your stakeholders to cover the cost and pay for them? Right. I mean, I think we uh, we balance that as well as we possibly can. I mean, there's definitely issues with out-of-pocket costs, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the debate around drug pricing is over-focused on list price and things that the American consumer doesn't really focus on and doesn't really translate to for them when they go to the pharmacy counter. Mm -hmm. So we try to redirect and say, you know, the issues are really what people are paying in out-of-pocket costs, and let's take a look at that. And let's also take a look at when you talk about these these more complicated issues like reference pricing and <laughs> the rebate rule and all of that. And let's try to unpack that for people so that they understand what's behind it. Now, you and I met on a panel discussing the reference pricing proposal of Secretary Azar and Health and Human Services. It looks like with Trump's executive order last week that they're really gearing up to try and put the 
international reference pricing in the market and try and do it for real. What's your opinion of that piece right now? What do you think is going to happen and how would it impact your stakeholders? Yeah, I think it would definitely impact our stakeholders negatively and not just older adults, but younger aged adults and kids across the board. I think it sets a bad precedent because a lot of other countries base their uh, pricing on uh, use of quality for cost effectiveness and quality adjusted life years are uh, discriminatory towards older adults, towards people with disabilities. They were originally adopted for use in healthcare rationing Mm -hmm. by England in the 1960s. It's not a new concept. It's a pretty darn old concept. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we need something newer to, to base Uh, how we value medication and and, um, not discriminate. And in fact, we have laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act that actually say that you can't use cost effectiveness as a basis in those types of quality-based analyses for public policy that, in fact, it is considered discriminatory. One of the things you folks have been advocating for here at the Alliance for Aging Research is a license under evidence. So the fact that you come in maybe earlier under an evidence package and then you have license requirements, and I'm thinking a bit about the European Medicines Agency has put in place a 15-year data requirement for the CAR-T therapeutics. So they will be monitoring them and measuring them, but then they're also coming in, they came in quite early, at least in the regulatory decision. Do you see this as maybe another way to try and accelerate approvals, but yet also then have the evidence to make sure that we're not missing any safety signals, et cetera? I mean, in the United States, we have coverage with evidence development in the Medicare program, Mm -hmm. and that was originally created to help drive innovations out into public use and provide coverage while still recognizing that you needed to limit the population Um, and continued to study it to make sure that it was reasonable and necessary under Medicare statute. Um, What I think has happened is I think that CMS has kind of lost their way around use of coverage with evidence development and that uh, this policy tool is sort of being dragged out Mm -hmm. in a lot of different situations to the detriment of access. And the thing about the Medicare program is it is supposed to provide equal access. It's not private health insurance. It's something that all citizens in the U.S. who have a job pay into. Um, and with uh, therapies like CAR-T, like the transcatheter aortic valve replacement, which is a, a device-based, with uh, scanning, like PET scanning for amyloid, for Alzheimer's disease, or ruling out Alzheimer's disease as mm-hmm. a diagnosis, they're really limiting the populations. In the case of PET scans, it's around 22,000, so it's real tiny. In the case of TAVR, that's been going on uh, seven, eight years, so it's dragged out, I think, mm-hmm. much longer than the program originally intended it to. And with CAR-T, I think they're starting to see potential access issues for rural populations. Same thing with TAVR. Sure. So you need to look at those issues and whether or not you know um, Medicare beneficiaries are being served across the board or whether it's really like a tool that is ending up impeding access. So what would you recommend then if we 
want to have these access programs, but you know, there's some distribution issues, or at least there's some geographical spread issues. How do you think we can improve this? I think there's a couple of different things. I mean, part of what these programs rely on are patient registries, mm-hmm. and the specialty societies have uh, tend to bid on these registries, and then they go on to to charge facilities for participating in the registry. So they become like a money making vehicle sure. for the specialty societies. So there's a bit of a conflict there. And CMS uh, does not have a lot of enforcement power with the CED tool. They actually um, developed it out of the national coverage determination statutory language. So it wasn't a separate statute. They kind of created it under the existing statute. Sort of like a Mickey Mouse here on a balloon. Yeah, so HHS really, I think, has the ability to kind of re-examine that and see if it's possible for them to give more enforcement authority to CMS to be able to make sure they're getting the data that they're asking of these patient registries, that they're getting the data they need out of the clinical trials that are a part of them, and to speed up the process. I mean, these are these are products that have been approved as safe and effective by the FDA. In some cases, in the case of TAVR, for example, we were the 42nd country to approve use of TAVR. So it had been around for a while. It had been around the block, so mm-hmm. to say, so to speak. So for it to be under coverage with evidence development now going over seven years, that's a long time. And we need to have general access. On the other side of the coin, if we could use this evidence under license under evidence to get to market faster instead of taking 11 years to five years, wouldn't that also be a more intelligent way to maybe try and reduce some of the pricing as well? Absolutely. That's right. Because once it becomes much more available, much more widely available, then they can reduce the price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point. So one of the things we're seeing as well is the increasing amount of orphan conditions. Last year, 40% of the authorizations were for orphan uh, conditions in the FDA. Is it inevitable with the increasing use and availability of genetic testing and but genetic biomarkers that we're just going to see smaller and smaller targeted populations? If we do look at the CAR-Ts that are there in acute lymphoblastic leukemia, you're looking at an annual population of seven 750 patients a year. Now, if you've got $2 billion for an investment in a drug that's only for 700 people a year, it will be expensive. I mean, isn't there just going to be a reality that we need to do something here? And one of the things we need to do is just realize that if we're going to target more, it's inevitable that science is driving us to these more targeted populations. Yes, and I think that's what we're starting to see with the Spark Therapeutics and all these different, and they are hugely expensive. We don't have the models right now within our, you know, uh, insurance um, uh, reimbursement and within Medicare reimbursement to figure out how to pay for these, how to place evaluation on them. And so it's sort of all, you know, make it up as we go along. And that's uh, that's a lot of money for families to think about a $1 million therapy or a $2 million therapy. In theory, you get it. it is it worth that much to you? Um, and, and it makes sense. But in reality, it's going to become hugely expensive for people. One thing that we're excited, excited about at the Alliance for Aging Research is the promise of geroscience, which is looking at the root of aging itself. So looking at things like cell senescence, 
resistance and inflammation and stress response and how these sort of basic biological processes of aging contribute to the development of diseases like cancer and heart disease and neurodegenerative diseases. So on the one hand, we're all very unique and special and our genetics, uh, you know, make us make us individuals. But on the other hand, we're sort of more alike than we think mm-hmm. when it comes to biological processes. And I think that the, the models that we have now that are very siloed and very disease specific also have to think about you know, broadening out, and uh, there's a future there as well that has vast potential to not just target one disease at a time, but multiple. And that gets us to areas of neurological disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, which obviously is going to impact your population hugely. There were two failures again last week. I think that puts us up to 278 failures in a row. Obviously, what we're doing now is not working. What do we need to do to improve Alzheimer's research? How are you folks involved in trying to improve the pipeline? We've had a uh, coalition for uh, about 12 years now called Accelerate Cure and Treatments for Alzheimer's Disease. And what we do is we convene industry with the academic community, the patient advocacy community, and uh, folks at the NIH to interact with the Food and Drug Administration Review Divisions in Neurology and Psychiatry outside of an IND process so that we're kind of taking a look at what are the broader clinical development issues that we're running up against here, whether it be clinical meaningfulness or looking at why can't we address this with combination therapy like they've done with iSpy or, mm-hmm. you know, other disease areas uh, or looking at uh, big data issues. And we've had some success, you know, with creating neurology across FDA, working group, uh, creating a patient representative program, all that. And with, you know, some sort of off-the-record, candid discussion with the review divisions that has kind of opened up some things in these clinical trials. But I think ultimately, you know, the arguments that have come out lately around the amyloid theory and all that, they've been tough to have, but they've been necessary. Is is amyloid beta dead? Are we done with that pathway now? I don't think so. I don't think that will ever be fully done because it is a recognized symptom um, of the illness. But I think in terms of whether or not we put all our eggs in that one basket, I think the community is starting to recognize, hmm. It's a lot of broken maybe, eggs. yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of broken eggs Maybe right we need to reevaluate. This week, matter of fact, yesterday, the Alliance of Aging Research released a stakeholder survey on Medicare Part D's out-of-pocket costs for the end user. What were the core findings of the study in summary, and what do you see are the next steps? Sure, and we did this in, in, uh, in partnership with Morning Consult. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found one in five older adults age 60 and older are struggling to pay for their prescription drugs. No huge breakthrough there. But we did find that of those who deal with a chronic condition, um, nearly one in four, about 24%, report that they've stopped taking a prescription medication because of the cost. For, of a, the chronic, for a chronic condition. That's right. Wow. And that, that is pretty alarming. That's something that I think needs to catch our attention. And the other thing that we tested 
is we asked older adults if they support Congress passing legislation to place a cap or limit on Medicare Part D out-of-pocket costs, and more than half of Medicare beneficiaries said they'd be willing to pay a few extra dollars a month. We asked them, we tested $48 a month in Medicare premiums to make it happen. So we feel like, you know, you have the buy-in of America's older adults. The ball's now in the court of Congress and the administration. They got to move something. How has the uptake been on the congressional side and the legislative side? Is there interest in trying to find a compromise here to fix this? I think that there is strong support for a cap on Medicare Part D out-of-pocket costs. I think there's an absolute recognition that this is a problem, whether they deal with it with an annual cap or a monthly cap, if they address the issue of 5% catastrophic, um, there's also the issue of smoothing. A lot sure. of older adults have um, deductibles that they have to pay at the beginning of the year. And, you know, people oftentimes have this perception it's thousands and thousands of dollars. But if you ask the patient assistance programs, a lot of them say folks are coming to them for just requests of a couple hundred dollars. So we really feel like there are some solutions to uh, address the smoothing issue and to just address uh, these issues month to month to make sure that people are able to to buy their medications and adhere to them. Do you think the increasing use of biologics and generics will continue to help this as well from the affordability issue on the long tail? I think so. I think the CREATES Act, you know, with encouraging use of biosimilars, trying to address some of these patent issues, um, and the use of generics. I do think ultimately you need to look at Part D design and sure. what they're incentivizing, um, all of that, absolutely. For older adults, you know, I, I mean, in some ways, I feel like C- CMS kind of created their own monster with the incentives towards the use of the Part B. So I think Part B as well, and sort of looking at the incentives for that, because older adults, if they had their druthers, wouldn't necessarily want to have to go to the doctor's office Mm -hmm. to get their medication if they can do it at the pharmacy. Of course. So over the next five years, what do you see are the biggest opportunities for the Alliance of Aging Research to have an impact on your stakeholder group? And what do you think are the biggest challenges? I mean, I think that the aging of the population, again, it's it's a bit of a blessing and a curse, right? Because uh, it, there's, it, there is going to be increasing demand for care and for services. I think Alzheimer's disease is uh, going to be front and center because we're just going to have a lot more people that are diagnosed with it. I think that the ability to get folks engaged in participating in research is a challenge and an opportunity um, because a lot of the products that are being reviewed by FDA are for older adults, but d- but older adults are are not represented in research at the levels that they should be. Sure. So I think getting folks involved in clinical trials is important. And then in terms of educating folks to, to have better participation in decision-making around their health care is also going to be a big issue. So education around participation and patient-reported outcomes, things like that. Yeah, exactly. Susan, thank you very much for your time, and I wish you all success. Thank you. Thanks for having me.